I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome again. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And Steve Keen has often spoke about the need for debt jubilee. If we can write off debt and then people bog down with it, we'll start spending again, boosting the economy rather than leading the economy to a cliff edge where asset prices crash because people stop spending, demand falls, and it all looks pretty sick. Remember 2008? Only more so. So what would a debt jubilee look like? And is it just theory? Or could it work? So, Steve, I mean, there's uh, there's many people who talk of debt jubilees for third world countries. Uh, if we look at uh, Greece, for example, and we're talking government debt here, sovereign debt. If we look at Greece, for example, not quite a third world country yet, uh, but sovereign debt so high that the bailout money that's paid to Greece is largely used to pay for their interest payments. So they're, they're no better off. Um, and so that debt will still have to be paid at some point. So I, I know your idea of a debt jubilee relates to household debt, but should we have a, a debt jubilee for sovereign debt too? Well, the whole question of what sovereign debt is, is is part of the issue here because you get absolute panic material. The only stuff they see more panic material about uh, government debt is uh, Russia interfering in our elections, which you know drives me, they both drive me equally up the wall <laughs> reading them. But this one on, on, on government debt, um, government debt is, is just the other side of a, of a ledger that the government maintains when it creates money. And in in this sense, it's the, the, the difficult part to get through to people is that government debt, when it's issued by, you know, when a country has its own currency, particularly also when it has a either a balanced trade, uh, trade position or, or trade surplus, that money creation um, is, hang on, it's, I get so tired of having to explain this one because it's it to me it's becoming like sucking eggs and you, you feel like you're talking to your grandmother all the damn time about yeah, yeah. personally, but your grandmother actually doesn't know how to suck eggs, so you've got to keep on doing it. But the basic point is that if the government wants to spend, then it has two sources of revenue for that. First of all, it has taxes. Uh, otherwise, it has bonds its issues if uh, its spending exceeds its taxes. Now, if its spending exceeds its taxes, it issues bonds, which are then treasury bonds, which are then sold to the private sector. Now, if you and I were going to do something similar to finance a deficit we had, we couldn't spend money to what actually sold the bonds. But in go- the government case, once the, once the, the uh, parliament has passed the bill that allows those bonds to be issued, then the central bank treats the government as having the money already, which it does because... What we you know, even though you've got the, the argument about the central bank sometimes being privately owned, which was the case for the Federal Reserve, still apparently is. The Bank of England was privately owned until I think uh, pretty close to the Second World War. But they're government institutions, they answer to the government. And as soon as the government says we've got the bills passed, then the central bank treats them as having the money in their in the treasury account of the central bank that they can spend. 
So that's that's uh, you know, that's one big difference between right. you and me. But you're talking about. But I mean, you are talking about a situation in the first world. In the third world, it's very different, isn't it? Where you've got countries in Africa where most of their debt is debt, whether it's funded by uh, uh, bank uh, bank loans or bonds that are issued. I mean, it's all going in foreign money because they don't have a. That's you know, that's the problem. I mean, it comes comes back to the issue of whether you have the money or not. Mm. And I, I've had the money. So are you talking about debts in your own currency or debts in a foreign currency? Right. You're talking debts in a foreign currency it's absolutely different because you know zimbabwe can't produce american dollars if it could it's probably it could its problems would be over uh, but it, it, because it has to buy goods from overseas and is running a huge trade I, I presume zimbabwe is running a trade deficit uh, with that trade deficit then you have to provide uh, you have to buy foreign currency to be able to purchase those goods which you can't uh, cover by an export your exports because your imports exceed your exports right um, that's the basic problem. So in, in that case, when you want a jubilee, you're saying you're writing off debt, they own a different currency. Yeah. So and that's, that's of course, what Anne Pettifor organised back in the 2000. So then, and, and so when you talk about a debt jubilee to most people, that's what they think of. They think of, yeah. you know, uh, helping out third world countries. The issue, of course, is if you've got a third world country which is running in debt, all you're doing is sort of like uh, helping with a short-term solution. That debt, obviously, is just going to rack up again. You're sort of like taking them back to the start. But the, the, but the problem that created it still exists. I'm just wondering whether if, if you know, if, if that, so you've got to fix the issue. I'm just wondering if you do the same thing with, with house hold debt and say start issuing a debt jubilee are you going to hit the same problem you know you're just uh, you're not fixing the problem all you're doing is taking people back to the beginning again well that would be the case if you didn't do other changes to the financial system so uh, the, the, the level of, of private debt uh, that's been based in, in mortgages is astronomical as we both know and particularly in countries like australia and canada where it's about 120 where household is about 120 percent of gdp uh you've got an enormous level of of, of debt uh in in the household sector and if you just simply said, let's cut that down to say 60% and then didn't make any changes, the banks would be out there lending again tomorrow for household purchases and you'd have another household bu- house price bubble. So you have to do stuff which, which changes the nature of the financial system because the, the difficult thing that people uh, are still getting their heads around is that we're starting to un- understand in general that money is created by double entry bookkeeping. It isn't a case of banks lending out money you deposit with them. They create the money when they create the loan. Um, <clears throat> in, that, in that situation, it's the creation of money that causes the bubble. And that, that whole dynamic would lead you back into the same old bubble situation again. You get positive feedback between the amount of money lent and the level of house prices. So the increasing amount of money means an increasing level of house prices. So you simply don't want to have what has actually happened in Ireland. Again, I was quite stunned when I was there to see that there's another housing bubble starting five years after housing prices fell 50%. So it's obvious that just uh, reducing the level of household debt, whether you do it by deliberate policy or by bankruptcy, and uh, as was the case in a lot of Ireland, if you don't change the financial system, you'll be back in the same problem in five years' time. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we, you know, we've we've talked about it in the past, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again. So, let's look at the idea of a debt jubilee and how it how it will work. And and first well, of all, how necessary is it? So we, uh, you know, we often get back to the, the the Great Depression and how we got out of that. And that wasn't a debt jubilee, was it? It was it was the government spending big on armaments. It was lots of people, you know, full employment. If you send everyone out to war, everyone's got a job. That's a marvelous thing. And then people weren't spending much because there wasn't very much they could buy. So we sort of eased our way out of that situation without a debt jubilee, didn't we? 
We did. And like there, were, there was certainly parts of it that were a bit like a dead jubilee. And I still haven't done the research I want to do on the, uh, on the bank holiday that Roosevelt enforced during the Great Depression. But that bank holiday ended up with lots and lots of banks being consolidated, lots and lots of debt being marked off of bad debt and written off. And uh, that was a particular, particular contribution to reversing the trend that was started at the beginning of the Depression because you had people paying off their debt uh, and going bankrupt at quite an astronomical rate. So the rate of decline of debt, uh, debt was in nominal terms as falling at about 10% per annum, but GDP was falling at about 20 to 25% per annum. And there's a, there's a feedback between the two because if you, if you and this is what Irving Fisher realised when he wrote the, the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions, if you pay off your debts, what that means is you take money you have in a bank account and you hand it over to the bank. So the bank's liabilities, which your deposits fall, your debt falls at the same time, but the fall in the bank liabilities is a fall in the amount of money in the economy. So mm. there's less money. Yeah. Secondly, because you're in a, in a, in a crisis, as you obviously were back in the Great Depression, anybody who had money is being extremely frugal. So the velocity of money fell at the same time. So you had negative money creation and you had falling velocity. And that's why even though debts were being paid down in nominal terms, GDP was falling faster again. Now, and prices uh, that, would be that, falling, presumably, in that situation, too. Pardon, sorry? You'd, you'd have deflation. You'd have prices falling as well. Oh, yeah. Prices were falling by 10, 10 to 13% per annum for the first couple of years of the Great Depression, which was fabulous for anybody who had a job, of course, because mm. their, their wages, even though the wages were falling, they weren't falling as fast as prices. So if I can put my personal uh, case, my mother's father was a, um, a post office manager in Australia, and he had a job all the way through the Great Depression, and, and my family you know, was quite comfortable during that period because even though his wages were falling, they weren't falling as fast as prices were, and I don't believe they had any debt. So they did very nicely. Um, so that's, that's but the, the, the negative for people, of course, is falling prices, um, falling uh, value of companies, bankruptcy, firms being unable to pay their debts, chain reactions, et cetera, et cetera. But that started coming to an end in about 1933. And part of it, I think, was the bank holiday that Roosevelt imposed, that... Uh, that settled the settled the process for for a while. You had a period from about 1932, 33 to about 36, when the level of private the ratio of private debt was falling, but the actual nominal stock of debt wasn't. So the amount of money in circulation was constant, uh, partly rising because of the scale of the of the um, uh, the New Deal. And the New Deal, even though it was a big, it's still a big deal, big enough for us to talk about it, you know, 80 years later, the New Deal resulted in a government deficit of 5% of GDP at its maximum, yeah. which is trivial compared to what we, we've experienced after the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, then Roosevelt got persuaded to rebalance the budget, bang, uh, back, to, back to private sector deleveraging again. Uh, GDP fell once more, unemployment rose from 11% to 20 and then the build-up to the Second World War began. And, of course, that was initially in, uh, England purchasing the cash-and-carry scheme from, from America as they were worried about the rise in uh, military power of Nazi Germany. But the Second World War itself was an enormous stimulus, and, and that's what really reduced the private debt level, certainly in America. And uh, it went from... I actually haven't got the figures in front of me, which is a mistake. Um, but the level of the level of debt went from something of the order of sixty or seventy percent of GDP, it's private debt, to about thirty percent, which was not quite the lowest America's ever had, but very very low. So our debt jubilee 
in the, uh, in the in the after the Great Depression was the Second World War. Mm. Although not as such a not not a jubilee as in in the strict sense of the word, but the and I'm just wondering if, if there are examples of where you know wholesale debt, household debt has been has been written off anywhere in the world in history. In history, it has because the whole idea of jubilees began back in the Sumerian times. And here, Michael Hudson's a guy we should have in Michael Hudson and Cornelia Wunsch if we get her, get her on the radio. Um, they're the experts on that. And the basic logic back then was that when you fell into debt, it was mainly because of the you know, failure of, of crops. Mm. Um, and the result of going into debt was you become a debt slave. You'd then work on the on the property of the moneylender. Uh, and as that continued happening, the, the Sumerians basically understood that you had exponential increase in, in debt given compound interest, but only a sort of um, S-shaped, what's called a, a logistic curve increase in, in productivity of the land uh, if you if you, you know, invested any cow dung on the land. And um, the as, as the number of, of, uh, of debt slaves rose, the number of potential uh, freemen to fight in the army fell and it was a case of either let the landlord get rich or the moneylender get rich uh, and leave, lose the kingdom or behead the moneylender and keep the kingdom. Yeah. It wasn't a really hard choice back then. No. I mean, do, do you know what? I mean, there's a lot of references in the Bible, too, to this idea of, uh, of, of, um, of debt slaves as well and quite a lot of references to forgiving debt. Uh, so there's a precedent there. And, in fact, uh, in Lagash, in a, you know, what is now Iraq, there's, uh, they found an inscription on the, the bricks of a temple, which is basically uh, laying out the terms for cancellation of debt. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not a new concept. It's obviously been seen for time immemorial that well, we do have people, to write debt off sometimes. Yeah, people go and pray in church and say, forgive us our trespasses. They, I think the original term was actually forgive us our debts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was too. Uh, so, uh, so I mean, there, so there is a precedent set there. What of those people who haven't got debt, though? I mean, that's obviously the, you know, the, if you start talking about a debt jubilee and we'll talk about how you might apply it, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, like your parents who say, well, this isn't a problem for me. In fact, I'm, you know, and, you know prices are being held down because, because of this debt issue. Uh, I'm quite happy where I am. Why should you be helping people who have, you know, and I've seen arguments in your blogs from people leaving comments. Why should I be paying the price uh, for people who have got themselves into this situation? Which is why I've developed the extra argument saying, well, let's actually make it a modern debt jubilee, where rather than just freeing the debtors, you give everybody, given the government's money creation capability, everybody gets a cash injection, whether they're debtors or not. Those who, aren't, uh, who are debtors get their debt paid down. Those that, are, that, that don't have debt get a cash injection. And uh, that raises the next issue. People have raised me, well, what if that actually causes inflation? And I find that quite hilarious to some extent because... That's exactly what central banks have been trying to cause for the last uh, 10 years and failing abjectly until very, very recently. But uh, the other uh, way that that could be controlled would be if you use that money to buy shares, because particularly in the UK, uh, the level of, of corporate debt is pretty much the same as the level of, of household debt. So if you just got rid of one, you're still going to be stuck with the other. And what, I what I'm suggesting here is that if you get issued... Uh, money through a modern debt jubilee and you don't have debt, then you have one choice, uh, or potentially just one choice. You could make, you can make it more flexible than that. And that is that you have to um, you have to pay down, you have to have to buy shares, which are used by the corporations that sell the shares to reduce corporate debt. 
Right. But wouldn't you also be just causing an asset bubble in, in share prices, as you know, potentially we're seeing in the United States at the moment? If well, the asset bubble's been caused by the central banks themselves, and this is partly why I think there's actually probably more potential to argue this case than there was before we, they began quantitative easing, because remember the, the central banks were caught completely by surprise by the financial crisis. They had no idea it was coming. In fact, they thought 2008 was going to be a, a cracker year, and then it hits them, and what do they have as an avenue? The one thing they, they had previous experience was of Japan doing quantitative easing uh, for, you know, 15, or say 10 years before the crisis hit in America. And what quantitative easing was, was the central bank would buy bonds off the private banks and the private, by buying bonds off the private banks, not just short-term government bonds, which is the usual thing they do in what they call repo, repurchase agreements. So they're doing all the time. Um, they, the, the, the private, the government, the central bank would buy bonds right across the spectrum, and even started buying mortgage-backed securities. Now, what that meant was, you think about it in terms of a double entry, what's going on? The central bank says, "Here's a billion dollars, wax it into the bank account of, uh, let's say, Chase Manhattan," and then Chase Manhattan says, "Oh, that's nice. Here's a billion dollars worth of our mortgage-backed securities," and that goes on the asset side of the central bank ledger. Now. What the central bank has done is effectively validated that debt of the and, and paid full price for it too. Mm. But that then means that the the Chase Manhattan, or whatever it's called, after the last last merger, uh, has a billion dollars of cash and a billion dollars less of income earning assets. So it uses that billion dollars to go and buy other assets, which are um, you know pretty hard buying bonds when the when the when the uh, the, the gorilla and the the biggest gorilla in the family is buying all the government ones. So you go and buy shares. And, well, who do you buy the shares of? You buy the people who own shares, and are they rich or poor? Yeah. yeah. Of course, they're rich. So what you had is a massive increase in in inequality after the crisis caused by central banks. Yeah. Now what I'm arguing for QE for the people here in in modern detriment is let's reverse that. Let's then uh, uh, give money to on a per capita basis. Uh, So Rupert Murdoch gets the same amount as you do. And then if you don't have any debt, uh, I think Ribbit has got some debt. Yeah. If you get, get any debt, you you pay your debt down by say ten thousand quid. Uh, but if you don't have debt, you've got to buy ten thousand dollars pounds worth of shares, which are then used to buy the company receives them specifically to cancel their 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 corporate debt. So you'd reduce the level of leverage in both the corporate sector and the um, and the household sector. Right. But that that uh, leads me leads me nicely onto the next question because how much? So if you mention that figure of ten thousand, let's take that yeah. as a for example. Now, I'd love ten thousand right now, um, but you know if I was to say, well, uh, I'm going to put that towards a house. Uh, given the price of houses around here, that's not going to go very far for me. If I've got one of those houses and I'm reacting high debt, ten thousand isn't going to be very much either. It's going to make no difference to uh, uh, to you know whether I'm going to default at some point or um, you know how much I'm having to pay in uh, if interest rates go up. It's not enough. So you know it, it would have to be quite a substantial sum, wouldn't it? But if we look at US UK household debt, it's about one point six trillion pounds, which is about twice the amount the government spends. Um, every year so if we wipe the swipe slate clean clearly that's way too much money you mentioned inflation uh, you would certainly get that if you spent twice what the government spends 
in a, in a year, you might actually have a problem with inflation at that point. So what, what's the order? So there's the two extremes. What's the order of magnitude? Well, literally, we worked it out while you were talking. Thank God for computer keyboards. Mm. Um, and thank God and, I take a long time to ask a question. Oh, thank God you're long-winded. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Thanks. And you're welcome. And uh, looking at that, like if I said 10,000 per person in the UK, there's for 60, what, 60 million is roughly the population? Yeah. Okay. Uh, divide, and divide that by the last value of GDP, UK GDP. If you gave 10000 to every person, you'd be giving them 30% of GDP. Now, the current level of private debt in the UK, and this is the household sector, and we go tapping, pardon me, tapping on the microphone here, current level of debt in the household sector is rising once more, and it's currently 88% of GDP. So you could reduce household debt um, by, let's say, half people of half people are debtors and half a don't have debt, you'd reduce it from 80, 87%, say, to 70%. That's still way above level it was back in 1980. To give people a picture for that, the level of household debt is I said, roughly 90% of GDP now. Back in 1980, it was 30% of GDP. So a long way to go. But that, that, that figure of 10,000 per person would reduce um, household debt by, say, uh, 15%, 80, 87 roughly down to, say, 70%. And then for the corporate sector, which is currently running at about 75% of GDP, it would reduce that debt level to 60%. Right, but you're averaging it all out, aren't you? I mean, there will be some yeah. people who are yeah. very heavy in debt and there's some people who are, you know, not in debt at all. And it, and ironically, those people who are very heavy in debt are probably also very rich. Uh, you know, they're certainly very asset rich, uh, but they're the ones who can land themselves in, in the most trouble and do the most damage to the economy. So they're the ones you're going to have to help the most. And that's probably what people are going to have difficulty with. You're going to have people who don't have a lot of money saying, hang on a second, you're going to give me a slug of money, but you're also going to bail out, um, you know, the rich people. But are you going to bail them out enough to I get them out of trouble? Them. To get them out of trouble. I don't care about them macroeconomically. Mm. Uh, first of all, they're a trivial part of the population. Secondly, they don't spend anywhere near as much as the poor. Well, okay, not the not the very rich, but the people who do have a high mortgage. So let's, uh, you know, I, I'm living in a in a in a in a part of the country where it's very difficult to buy anything that's worth less than uh, half a million um, pounds. Yeah, and uh, I'm you know surrounded by people who aren't really earning. I mean, you know, earning more than the average probably for the for the country, but certainly not not enough to compensate for the fact that house prices are are very expensive. So you have so they will be they will be carrying heavy debt, and uh, you know not necessarily what you'd call rich, just middle class people with heavy debt. Uh, you'd have to pay a lot to them to um, you know to to get them out of a difficult situation, for example, of interest rates to rise uh, and you wanted to ensure that they carried on spending, which is the whole idea behind this, isn't it? Well, it's not so much that they're carrying on spending. It's it's reducing the extent to which the debt overhang means people don't take our credit in the first place. Mm. We don't have sufficient aggregate demand. But I, this, this is the sort of thing you need to analyse in a complex feedback system, put together a complex model not the neoclassical DSGE load of garbage, yeah. but something that actually covers non-equilibrium dynamics and monetary flows, and then say, what is the impact? What is the hypothetical impact of doing this? And test it at various levels. So, like, if I go, 10,000 was, a, was a just an obviously round figure. If we imagine there's, say, 30 million bank accounts in the country, then you'd give 20,000 pounds. That's still 30% of GDP. You could start with something as low as 3,000 pounds and see what happened. Yeah. and then measure the impact. But a large part of this is trying to reduce the level of leverage behind financial assets because a huge part of the price level of both houses and shares is the level of leverage people are taken out. And if you start reducing this leverage and you also make policy changes to housing so that banks can't lend 
um, more than another part of my proposal is that they can't lend more than say 10 times the expected annual rental income of the property, then you would actually cause house prices to fall. Now, that is clearly going to have an issue for people who've got themselves highly levered and think they're extremely wealthy because of their overvalued houses caused by the leverage. If the leverage starts to fall, and this is talking about the marginal leverage too, it's the new level of new loans coming out, not the reducing the level of existing debt so much, but meaning that the level of new debt for housing would be substantially lower. House prices would fall could, could fall quite dramatically. So you'd have quite a few things to try to balance in this whole policy. It would not be easy. But if we don't, if we have a problem caused by too much private debt, and that's definitely the cause of the crisis and the cause of the, the slump afterwards, you've got to get it down. Yeah. And there's two options, either debt jubilee or we bomb the shit out of each other again in World War Three. <laughs> I wish I could end it on that point, but I've got a couple more questions. And one which I'm sure, which I'm sure, because that was a great end, you know, love to end on a strong piece. But let's let's uh, let's not do that, because I know one thing that people will listening will be asking. And I'm sure you get asked this all the time is just and I've asked it, you know, about the behavior around banks. Doesn't it just reduce the risk? So if people know that every so often there's going to be a debt jubilee. Uh, when they just return to their old ways, they'll just go, well, this is fine. The government's going to get me out of this uh, down the track, so I don't need to worry about it too much. Well, they're doing it already. I mean, this is the fact that the island's got a housing bubble again, five years after it had a 50% house price slump, shows that, yes, they will go back to their old way of behaviour if that is still feasible. So you simply can't do it just by saying, you know, here's a debt you believe, have a party afterwards. You have to follow it up with a range of controls over the social uh, privilege of being allowed to create money. And this is what, again, it's getting used to what money actually is. It's created by double-entry bookkeeping. Once you have the right to use your double-entry ledger to create money, you can do it. It's not, it's, it's not rocket science by any stretch of imagination. In fact, it'd be better if we freed a few of the rocket scientists up from actually working banks to going back and making rockets again. <clears throat> what, what, what could go wrong, though? I mean, if you, if you did it, say you experimented and you said, yeah, well, let's do maybe three or five thousand pounds. And I guess you're thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's like the people's quantitative easing that we talked about before. The money just goes into your yeah. bank account uh, and you feel that little bit wealthier. Uh, what could potentially go wrong with that approach? Well, there could be a burst, a burst to imports. That's one obvious thing. A trade deficit could get worse. Yeah. Uh, Which is arguably what happened in Australia, because money was, you know, they sort of tried this to try and uh, ease Australia through the global financial crisis. Money went into people's bank accounts at a time when, unfortunately, flat screen TVs were coming down in price. Mm. You know, and anecdotally, everyone went to uh, to, uh, Harvey Norman and bought themselves a flat screen TV. So, yeah, the balance of trade wouldn't have been helped by that. Yeah, and you all, the other side is you're also likely to get an impact in terms of the value of the currency. That's likely to fall, uh, which would, you know, which counteracts to some extent the the import process. If you did it on the scale I'm talking about, to, I mean, my target for the UK, for example, if you get it back to the level of debt it had for the last century before Maggie Thatcher, which is about 70% of GDP. Now, it's currently running at about 180%. So that's a substantial fall over time. That would have to have impacts on the balance of trade, have to have impacts on on uh, a value of the currency and so on. So you'd have to check all these things out in a simulation way. And you could also do it, as I say, on a, on a, on a test level, which I'd also like to do. That's what I'd like to see one element in, uh, in the budget, which I know is a zero chance of actually happening. So let's suggest it. And that's like, you know, a 1,000 pound test of this uh, through what the Bank of England is developing right now, which uh, they haven't yet implemented them, but they're looking at how it could be done, digital bank accounts for everybody. Mm. So... The reason that a, a debt jubilee hasn't been possible, you know, except for things like the thousand bucks per person back in Australia in 2008, uh, is that 
the banks don't have a way of directly contacting individuals. That's why they go through the financial institutions. Uh, but if they set up the framework so everybody has a digital account of the Bank of England, which has one-for-one -one parity with the English pound, uh, then they could use that. You'd be told if you withdraw the money from it, that has two uses. One is to pay down debt. The other is to buy buy shares from corporations, which themselves have to be used to pay down debt. So it's actually becoming more technically feasible now as well. Yeah, well, I wonder though whether if you haven't got debt and you you know you're, you're sort of forcing uh, the masses into um, into the financial classes almost, aren't they? They have to have to learn about shares. Well, again, this is something which I'm no great fan of the superannuation system in Australia, as you know, uh, because a lot of it's gone into share market price speculation rather than into actually getting investment done by corporations. But again, if it was done in conjunction with another part of the process that said you have to buy shares which the corporations use to cancel debt, then you could, uh, you know, that in that case, you're reducing the debt burden on UK corporations. And again, that debt burden is far higher than it used to be. It's currently running us at 70, 78% or 76% of GDP. Go back to 1980, just after Maggie elected, 24% of GDP. So you've had a trebling at the level of debt in the country. Uh, and, and this is over historical levels as well. So you know, you, this, this is the why I, you know, I get pissed off with people spending so much of their bloody emotional energy on Brexit not looking at credit, which is the real driver of the economy. Mm. Well, yeah, okay. Um, what about, I think Brexit's still an issue, though, but yeah. you, you and I beg to differ on that one. But look, the um, is there an example of anywhere in the world where there's a where there's a government that's actually said, yeah, well, we have an issue uh, with the household debt to GDP ratio and we need to bring it down? Is it, has any country no, anywhere no, in the world ever yet, taken it as a policy yet. objective? Not yet. This would be if it was done, it'd be the first time it was been was done. And um, and can it be done unilaterally? So could Britain say, "Well, okay, we're going to tackle this, and we're going to issue a debt jubilee"? Uh, no one else in the world's doing it. What could be the impact of that? Well, again, I think <clears throat> you've got to look at. Um, if you actually set it up so that people had to buy shares, and the shares were then you know held like in a, in a sense as a, as a corporate investment over time. Um, which which would mean that the people receiving dividends for the for the shares they were, they purchased, uh, then their spending level would be the dividend flow from the shares. It wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be spend the entire amount of money. So the actual impact on the on the real economy in terms of changing demand levels could be quite slight. Uh, the real impact would be reducing the debt burden and therefore meaning people uh, have a higher capacity to you know to spend than they have right now, where their disposable incomes are being squeezed by, by debt payments. So I've, I've got a feeling, and I would want to test this, I want to do a, you know, a very complicated Minsky non-equilibrium monetary model to look at what all the implications could be. Mm. But I think the overall implications could be giving corporations more room to consider investing, where at the moment they're basically buying their own shares back and recording, rewarding themselves with dividends. Uh, we, we could start definancializing the economy, and that is desperately necessary because so-called neoliberal period was really massive increase in private debt period, uh, which financialized the economy. And finance is, is a great a great servant and a lousy master. We've got to turn it back into a servant again, and that is fundamentally the only way you do that is by reducing its claims on the real economy, which is by reducing private debt. But if you if you allow somebody to pay off debt, um, they use that money to pay off debt. You'd have to also say, well, you you can't then, having paid off that debt, go and take out debt with um, with uh, 
to buy another house and Which is expand why I the want empire. To put limits on the amount of lending that banks can do because again, yeah. it's, it's a, what we have. In, the reason we had a crisis in the first place, in many ways, is the sheer stupidity of economic theory, which completely ignored the financial sector and treated the financial sector as exogenous to the economy. Uh, and they're now trying to model it as exogenous shocks. I mean, it's a bit, a bit of a bit of news to most people who aren't economists that the financial sector is not part of the economy. But with that ignorance, uh, we, we just walk blindly into this trap. You look at the data, and particularly the UK data, just screams there's something bad going on here, and they ignored it from 1980 on, this accelerating uh, level of private debt. So if we hadn't had that stupidity, we wouldn't be in this situation. So let, just to end on a strong point, then, we've got a choice, haven't we? We've got a choice of two things. One is that we can try and reduce this debt. What's the alternative? I think stumbling on with the level we're at right now. No, no, no. We bomb the living daylights out of each other. That was the strong well, point, remember? That, that's the bomb, we're bomb the living daylights out of each other is one possibility, but we, we'd actually, we, we, uh, we know we're not going to do that in the second, in the third world war. As I think Einstein was once asked... Uh, I, what, what would be the weaponry used in the third world war? And he said, I don't know what the third world war will be fought with, but the fourth world war will be fought with sticks and stones. Mm. All right, look, next time, foreign ownership, is it good or bad? Should we allow foreign companies or foreign individuals to own our houses or our companies or our farmland? Yeah. Uh, where should we draw the line? Uh, we'll talk about that next time. Till now, uh, thanks for your time. Okay. That's Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and that was the Debunking Economics Podcast. We'll see you next time. 